You are now listening to the February 20th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Story of Kings, a sermon, and divine intervention. First, let's begin with Story of Kings. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with Story of Kings. Starting last week, we have been sharing the story of Amaziah, the ninth king of Judah, as recorded in 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 1 to 22, and 2 Chronicles chapter 25. We had introduced that Amaziah was the son of Joash, the king of Judah, who was killed by his own servants after being wounded in a war against Aram. When Amaziah became king, he avenged his father's death. He executed those servants who killed his father, but spared their children. That was in obedience to the law that said not to kill children for their father's sins. Later, Amaziah decided to mobilize his troop to go to war against Edom. As he was preparing for the war, He realized he needed more soldiers, so he hired an additional 100,000 soldiers from Israel. He paid a hefty price tag of 100 talents of silver. However, God did not approve of those soldiers from Israel because they were idol-worshipping soldiers. He sent a prophet to warn Amaziah. God told him that he would not be with him if he went to war with the soldiers of Israel. So following the instruction from God, Amaziah sent the soldiers back to their home in Israel, despite having paid a great sum of money. When he marched out against Edom, he led only the soldiers of Judah, just as God commanded. As a consequence, Amaziah won the war against Edom. Amaziah and Judah enjoyed a great victory. Thus far, Amaziah's actions were those of a king who followed God's words and trusted him wholeheartedly. However, after he returned from the war against Edom, Amaziah started acting strangely. Here's a verse from 2 Chronicles chapter 25, verse 14. Now after Amaziah came from the slaughtering of the Edomites, he brought the gods of the sons of Seers, set them up as his gods, bowed down before them, and burned incense to them. Somehow he forgot how he kept God's command and followed God's word going into the war. Coming out of the war, however, his behavior changed in stark contrast to his actions to that point that showed obedience to God. Amaziah began doing things that went against what God would approve, For instance, he brought the idols of Edom and started worshipping them. He embraced false gods of the people he just conquered. In those days, a war between countries was considered a war between gods they were serving. People believed the god of the winning country was stronger than the god of the losing country. Oddly, 
Amaziah brought the gods of the people he defeated and worshipped them. Theologians offer some explanations. One potential reason might be that Amaziah was tempted by the dark and sensuous pleasures of idol worshipping. Another reason might be that he thought doing so would help avoid the future threats from the Edomites. For that, God became displeased with Amaziah and sent a prophet to warn him. Here are the verses from 2 Chronicles chapter 25, verses 15 to 16. Then the anger of the Lord burned against Amaziah, and he sent him a prophet who said to him, Why have you sought the gods of the people who have not delivered their own people from your hand? As he was talking with him, the king said to him, Have we appointed you a royal counselor? Stop. Why should you be struck down? Then the prophet stopped and said, I know that God has planned to destroy you because you have done this and have not listened to my counsel. Although Amaziah was spiritually faltering, God still wanted him to turn back to him. However, Amaziah's response was rude and arrogant. He did not listen to God's word delivered by the prophet. Rather, Amaziah mocked the prophet who was delivering the word of God by chiding him when he was ever appointed as a royal counselor to counsel the king. Then Amaziah took one step further and threatened him to shut his mouth if he did not want to be struck down. So the prophet stopped talking and gave one final warning to Amaziah that God would destroy him because he was not listening to his word anymore. With that, the prophet left Amaziah to his own devices. After winning the war against Edom, Amaziah became proud and his pride made him blind. He chose not to listen to God's word anymore. His heart became puffed up and falsely came to believe that it was his own strength that won the war against Edom. And that became amply clear when he began challenging his brothers in the north. The listeners may recall how the 100,000 soldiers of Israel became furious for being dismissed just before the war and how they let out their anger on the way home by pillaging the cities of Judah and had killed 3,000 people. Well, the puffed-up Amaziah decided to do something about this incident. So Amaziah sent word to Jehoash, king of Israel, to face him. Facing, in this context, had a confrontational meaning. It basically meant to engage each other in a fight. Amaziah, in essence, declared a war against Jehoash. Having been challenged by Amaziah, Jehoash sent a messenger with the following message. Here are the verses from 2 Chronicles chapter 25, verses 18 to 19. Joash, the king of Israel, sent to Amaziah, king of Judah, saying, The thorn bush which was in Lebanon sent to the cedar which was in Lebanon, saying, Give your daughter to my son in marriage. But there passed by a wild beast that was in Lebanon and trampled the thorn bush. You said, Behold, you have defeated Edom, and your heart has become proud in boasting. Now stay at home, 
For why should you provoke trouble so that you, even you, would fall and Judah with you? Jehoash made fun of Amaziah by comparing himself to the cedar and Amaziah to a thorn bush. Jehoash was pushing back on Amaziah not to even think about waging war against him. If he did, he would just be trampled. Jehoash was telling Amaziah he was no match for Jehoash and his forces. Jehoash said to Amaziah that his heart became proud from defeating Edom and his pride would cause him trouble and told Amaziah to stay home. We know that people do not listen to others when they become proud of themselves. Amaziah was too proud of himself and went to war against Israel, ignoring Jehoash's warning. Eventually, Jehoash and Amaziah took their troops and engaged each other at Beth Shemesh near Jerusalem. It was a lopsided battle. Jehoash crushed Amaziah. Jehoash captured Amaziah and tore down 400 cubits of the wall of Jerusalem from the gate of Ephraim to the Cornet Gate. Jehoash took all the gold, silver, and utensils that were in the house of God with Obed-Edom, which meant the servant of Edom. Jehoash took all the treasures from the king's house and took people as hostages and returned to Samaria, whether Amaziah was taken as a hostage along with others is not clear. The Bible does not give us an exact account of that. There are two interpretations regarding Amaziah's fate. The first one is that Amaziah was taken as a hostage and lived as one for about ten years until the death of Jehoash. He would then return to Judah and reign for fifteen more years. The second one is that Jehoash would allow Amaziah to remain as king of Judah, but as his subject in a subjugated relationship. Under that arrangement, Amaziah would have been in servitude for ten years until Jehoash's death. After that, Amaziah lived on as the king of Judah for fifteen more years. Regardless of which interpretation is correct, Amaziah eventually faced his death in Jerusalem. The Bible tells us that from the time that Amaziah turned his heart away from God, a group of people in Jerusalem began conspiring against him. So Amaziah fled to Lachish, a town about 25 miles southwest from Jerusalem. But the conspirators came after him to Lachish and killed him there. His body was put on horses and brought back to Jerusalem, and he was buried there, facing a bitter ending to his tumultuous life. 2 Chronicles chapter 25, verse 20 tells us the reason why Amaziah faced such an ending. It was because he sought the gods of Edom, so God delivered him into the hands of his enemy. What Amaziah did makes us think again about how important it is to keep the faith until the end. This concludes today's episode. We'll continue on with the story of kings next time. Have a blessed week.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is The King's Last Word. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. Well, this morning, as we're thinking about 2 Samuel 23, before we get started, let me pray and ask for God's help. Will you pray with me? Well, this morning, as we come before you, we are looking and gazing into your word. And Father, we know that you will tell us this morning through your word yet again that you have spoken by your spirit and that you still are speaking to us through David. And so, Father, this morning, we ask that our hearts would be ready to hear from you. Father, we need desperately to hear the voice of the living God. And so, God, we pray that you would speak and that you would breathe life into us, fresh life into our lungs, that you would help us as we are starving to hear from you, God. We pray that you would, as your word seeps in, transform and shape us and change us, that we might look more like what you have created us to look like. Would help us to glorify you, even as we listen. In your name we do pray. Amen. Well, here's the first thing we see in verses 1 to 3. We see that King David prophesies. Now, the author tells us these are the last words of David, and then he begins with a brief description of the meteoric rise of King David. Uh, You'll remember, as we've been going through his life, that God raised him up. He was a shepherd in the field, almost forgotten about. And yet, what we find throughout his life is that God raised him up, and he became the great hero of Israel that they sang about. Uh, You'll see this in in verse 1. Look at what verse 1 says again. It says this. It says, now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse. The oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. Now, notice first that he covers that meteoric rise of David from shepherd to king. Now, we've seen that God rejected King Saul for disobedience. That happened in 1 Samuel 15. And God chose the least likely son from a no-account family as his spirit-anointed king to save Israel from their enemies. Now, God raised his king up and placed him on his throne in Zion. God exalted and chose his king. And God promised You'll remember that he would give Abraham a great king from his line. We remember that in, back in Genesis chapters 12 and on. And then you remember later in Genesis 49 that Abraham's son Isaac had a son Jacob whom God promised he would bring about a son from his line. A great king who would come through Judah, one of his sons. Of course, Jacob became Israel. His name was changed, and and he gave birth to the 12 sons who represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And the final, and what's interesting is, is that though Jacob was great and Abraham were great, they promised someone greater that was to come. And we find here in these verses that David is the anointed of the God of Jacob. He is that son they had been looking forward to. See, God's promises to Jacob will focus on David's line. And the final line here in these verses, notice what it calls David, the sweet psalmist of Israel. I love the way that that's written, but it could mean different things. And people have translated it different ways. I've seen some say that this means that David is a sweet man from Israel who wrote the Psalms. 
Uh, Others have said uh, David is the sweet man about whom Israel wrote their songs. And even the word sweet could mean different things. It could speak of the fact that David is sweet from the perspective of God or from the perspective of Israel. Well, I think that as we look at this, both of those obviously are true. David was loved by God. He was loved by Israel. But I think that it it could be that these verses are trying to communicate that David is the hero about whom Israel sang. It was sweet for them to speak about David. See this word that is used for sweet here about David. David uses it too. He uses it in 2 Samuel chapter 1 when he is lamenting the deaths of Saul and Jonathan. And you'll remember there that he talked about them being mighty warriors. They are given this epic scene of being almost unbeatable until they are beaten. And in those verses, he calls them lovely, the same word for sweet. And so David is singing about the greatness of Saul and Jonathan at their deaths. I believe that David is the one whom Israel loved to sing about. And you'll remember this in 1 Samuel 18, 7. You remember how the women love to sing, Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. This was the great hero that they had been waiting for and that they were getting to experience in real time. And Israel loved to sing about King David because he was pleasant like sugar on their tongues when they sang of him. See, God's favor worked out into blessings upon them through David. They loved to sing about the salvation and justice that God had brought through this king. You know, Christian brothers and sisters, I'm just going to make a, a quick pivot here. We have a better king to love and to sing to, don't we? I mean, if, if they sang about how David saved them from physical enemies, a man who was about to die and has some last words, then how much more should we sing about the king who defeated sin, death, and the devil to draw us near to him? But notice here that David's last words were not David's words. Did you catch that? Notice they were an oracle. Now usually the offices of prophet, priest, and king are are separate. Those are major offices in the Old Testament that we read about. But we've seen David so far act, try to act as a a priest, right? In certain circumstances. And we've, we've here seen him speaking as a prophet. The commentator Robert Bergen says the Hebrew for oracle here signals a special speech act category reserved for prophetic utterances of unusual significance. See, the oracle comes with a thus saith the Lord kind of authority. I love that that line from the King James Version. It's not in your ESV. But the KJV everywhere says thus saith the Lord. The same language is used in Numbers 24. If you look at Numbers 24, you'll you'll notice in verses 3 to 4, this oracle of Balaam explains what's happening as he gives the oracle. It says this in verses 3 to 4 of Numbers 24. It says, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened. The oracle of him who hears the words of God, who sees vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. And catch what Balaam sees in Numbers 24, 14, whenever he has this oracle. It says that he sees a future and a hope. He says, a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. See, Balaam spoke of a coming king. Jacob himself prophesied that that king would come from Judah in Genesis 49, 10. 
And we are told that that king, the nations would obey him. See, David is a spirit-anointed king, that Messiah that the prophets were prophesying about. But here we see the Messiah that they'd been looking forward and preparing for is here preparing to die, and God's great Messiah prophesies in that moment. Don't miss this. David's last words were not David's last words. David speaks the very words of God. Now, verses 2 to 3a, they explain prophecy well from David. Notice what it says. David says, the Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue, and the God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel, he has said to me. Now, the Spirit speaks of God's presence. That God's presence was with David. And the rock speaks of God's power to protect and save. You'll remember that from chapter 22. See, Israel's Savior, God, is, is present with his king, speaking to his people. Now, there are two things that stand out here. Notice that God speaks through David. And God speaks to David. Both of those are said in these verses. In verse 2, God speaks to his people in an ongoing way through David. And in verse 3, God also speaks to David. Now the Spirit of Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, He is speaking this message to David and through David, and it has massive future implications for the people of God. Now here are a couple quick important implications. If you're trying to understand the nature of the Bible, maybe you're even wondering why I'm preaching from a Bible, kind of a unique thing for a lot of churches these days to preach from a Bible. Why do we do that? Well, if you are new to Christianity, this is a great place, I think, just to pull over the bus and explain why we preach from the Bible. It's because the Bible is not a book like other books. It's not like Plato's Republic. It's not like J.K. Rowling's, you know, uh, Harry Potter. They don't read like that. Now, the, the, the Bible is unique because Christians believe this, this, this book, these words, they are to God's people. And that when it comes, it comes with God's personal presence and power. God is with his people in his word. And, and now we found some ancient copies of Psalms when we found those Qumran scrolls. And we found that 2 Samuel 23 was actually with some of those scrolls. And I believe it was because they wanted us to read this very line before we read the Psalms to understand that the Psalms are God speaking to God's people through the prophet David, who's also king. Now 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 also tells us that it's not just the words of David, but all Scripture is God-breathed. It is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and the training in righteousness, that the man of God might be complete and equipped for every single good work. Is there something God's called you to do that's not in His Word? No. It is thoroughly sufficient to show you how to please God. It is thoroughly sufficient to show you how to live in this life. It has wisdom to direct you and to how to honor God in the decisions that you are making in this life and the life that is to come. It is the only hope that we have, words from God about how to be prepared when Jesus comes back or when you die and go to be with him. If you want good last words, then you need God's good word. See, God's word through David, it speaks to us. 
The Bible is the only book that I have ever found that reads you when you read it. When you are reading God's word, that word, you, you ought to sense that it is reading you back, that it is seeping to your heart and soul, that you are seeing something about God that you didn't see before, that you're seeing something about yourself that you didn't know before, that you're seeing some things that need to change, that you see some promises that are yet to come. So if you want hope in the midst of this pandemic, let me just encourage you to find a copy of God's Word and to read it spiritually. Now, I could go all day on this, but let me just give you like five quick things about reading the Bible spiritually. Pray before you read the Word of God that He would give you eyes to see and ears to, to hear from God. Pray second and ask that God's Word would search you and know you. And ask that He would would help you to see if there's any unclean way in you. And if there is, that he would lead you away from it into the way of everlasting life. Confess as you're reading things that come to light. Like, I don't know how you're reading your Bible. I get all kinds of encouragement. I also get all kinds of conviction. Because I realize that I am a broken human who doesn't work the way that he's supposed to. And some of that's just because, like, I'm not perfect, and other times it's because like, I actually like sin in ways that I shouldn't, and I need to be convicted by the Word of God. And when you read your Bible, you shouldn't expect every morning to have a verse that you want to plaster on your wall as like a happy thought. It should be something that comes in and actually brings you to your knees and before your face, before your holy and righteous God. But it should encourage you too. Fourth, find something as you read through the Scriptures, a a phrase or a verse that strikes you. Memorize it and say it throughout the day. And then fifth, share it with somebody. Hey, I was reading the Word of God today, and I'm not trying to like show off or anything, but I was just encouraged by this. Maybe it would encourage you. You know how often I've gone through my quiet time in the Word in a day, and later that day, there's some situation that I was like, man, God was like just filling my quiver to get ready for what was coming at me, and I didn't even know it. Like be ready. Be ready to use the word that God's given you that very day. And if you're looking for a way to get into reading the Bible, there are a lot of different ways that you can do it. Uh, you can go to our website. We have really good resources like M. Chain's uh, reading plan. But don't miss this. Jesus' sheep love the voice of Christ in the Scriptures, both the New Testament and the Old Testament. They love it. Second, Second application real quick. Take note that the Spirit of the Lord continuously speaks through the word of David to us. He, he is still speaking to his people through the words, the ancient words that he gave to David. In other words, this word that we read here, it's a word that would in one way be to David as he faced his last days. That's true. This was for David. But, but also, second, it would be for the future kings from David's line. In particular, and kings in general. And third, it would also be a message of hope for Israel concerning a greater Messiah that was to come. When they had a, a bad Messiah, a bad king, they could know that a great Messiah was yet to come. And fourth, it brings comfort to Christians who can relate to that longing of God's greater Messiah coming again to set things right. But catch what God's Word says through David in verses 3 to 4. Here's what he says. He says, just rulers who fear God are life-giving. Just rulers, just kings who fear God, they're life-giving. Now, the text says that when one rules justly over men, 
ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. See, the text says that when one rules justly over Adam, literally Adam in the Hebrew, or, or humanity, when, when this king is ruling over humanity. Now, ruling is language of kingship. That's what that word is, is used for. And up to 2 Samuel 8, it's interesting, justice characterized David's reign. You'll remember that. You remember in 2 Samuel 8.15 what he says? Characterizing his reign, it says that David reigned over all of Israel. And David, he administered justice and equity to all his people, to everyone. It was a a just, equitable king. See, David did not seek selfish gain. He didn't kill Saul when he had the opportunity to for fear of laying hand on the Lord's anointed. He did not show favoritism to the rich or to the poor. His punishments, they always met the crimes. They were fair. And the fear of God gave shape to David's just rule. Now, this idea of fear of God and just rule, that they meet at the law of God in Deuteronomy. Now, we see this in Deuteronomy chapter 17, 18 to 20, where we are told the king of Israel His job was, when he became king, to actually make a copy of the law for himself. He would actually have to, you know, it wasn't like cut, copy, and paste, right? Like he had to write it out by hand. And if he messed it up, the scribes would say, you got to go back and fix that, king. Like, don't kill me, but you got to fix that. And he would, after he made this copy for himself, he was supposed to read from it daily and memorize it and put it on his heart. And he explains this in Deuteronomy 17. You do this every day of your life. That he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of the law. And these statutes and doing them. That his heart might not be lifted up above his brothers. And that he might not turn aside from the commandments either to the right hand or to the left so that he might continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Did you catch that? Justice in the Bible is tied to God's law. Justice is not an abstract concept. It is not a culturally sort of uh, developed concept. Justice is in accordance with the very words of God. And here he says that even God's great king needed to meditate on God's law to make him humble before his brothers and humble before his God. Justice is theological before it's practical or sociological. It is something that is tied to the nature of who God is and who we are. And what we find here is, is if the Messiah needs God's word every day, don't you think that you do too? Don't you? Don't I? Don't We need God's word. Just rulers need rules too. See, David's job was to bring justice according to God's will to God's people. Such that the voice of God in heaven, what a beautiful thought, that that voice from heaven speaking down to man would create a culture of people here on earth so that literally God is saying, I want it to be on earth as it is in heaven. 
Here's what's fascinating. David's attention quickly turns from those general truths about ideal kings to specific promises made to David's house, his dynasty. And he asks this question in verse 5. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? Now the timing of, of David's question here, I find fascinating. If you've been tracking the story of David's life, it's fascinating that this would be placed at the end of his life after all that has happened. In fact, others have looked at this, commentators, interpreters, new and old, and some have taken this as an actual real question that David is doubting in his last days that he is with God in this way. And, and others have taken it to see it as a statement that David's house does not stand so with God. But where does David's house stand with God? You'll remember the, the first half of David's rule was characterized by justice. But 2 Samuel 11 to 20, that immediately precede this chapter, they look like the dumpster fire season of David's life. Samuel's author strategically placed this oracle after David committing adultery with Bathsheba. After he murdered her husband Uriah to cover it up. After, as a consequence, he lost a child. After, as a consequence, Amnon, his son, assaulted Tamar, his daughter. After his son Absalom killed Amnon for it. After the bloody rebellions of Absalom and Sheba that disrupted the whole nation. And all of this could be traced back to the injustice of King David. And so you're thinking, but you said that just kings who fear God lead to the flourishing of his people. And I'm sure David has to, in some sense, have those realities in his mind. Yet here, David brings his house or dynasty to the forefront of God's plan for a king for humanity, saying, for does not my house stand so with God? In other words, you've been generally talking about good kings. What about the promise that you made to my house? You remember that? Lots happened since then. See, when David looks back on his life, he could be singing about how he hurt himself and others like Johnny Cash, but he's singing, I believe here, about hope. Hope in God. Hope in God's everlasting covenant. Back from 2 Samuel 7. You remember? David is here hoping in the promises that God made there. See, God promised him an offspring with an eternal throne over the kingdom of God who would rule the nations. I mean, that's a high, far-reaching kind of promise for a guy that started out as a shepherd in the field. Of course, God calls his covenants with Noah and Abraham. And the new covenant is, is called, they are all called everlasting covenants. I, I don't see evidence of the, the Sinai covenant being called everlasting, but these are. And this is the only place David's covenant is called an everlasting covenant. Just here. And so much has happened since 2 Samuel 7 when that everlasting covenant was made that was not called an everlasting covenant back there. But David insists 
that God's covenant and those promises are still in play. That God has not turned his back on him, even though at times David turned his back on God. Now, he did not leave God, forsake God, abandon God, apostatize. But he sinned, and he sinned significantly. And here David says, my sin has not caused my God to abandon me. I've repented, and he's forgiven me. I face consequences. Life has gotten dark, but God is still there. I love what he says in Psalm 51.11. You'll remember there that after David sinned greatly in killing Uriah, he begged God, please don't remove your spirit from me like you did King Saul. Now do you remember what God promised in 2 Samuel 7 to David? I will not remove my spirit from your line when you sin against me as I did with Saul. I will discipline you as a son. So David prayed, please, God, don't abandon me to my sin and my fallenness and this broken world. Don't leave me to it. You've made great and awesome promises. Promise that you're going to do it and you're not going to take it away. See, God has helped David all of his days, even when David needed help against David. And David knows his chief good is God's unfathomable promises. You know, we can chase culture and the promises that it gives us to find meaning in. And the greatest grace that God can give us is to leave us destitute in those things so that we'll see that Still, our greatest desire when thinking clearly at the end of our days is the unfathomable riches and inheritance that God has promised us. I would just rather learn from listening and trusting and obeying rather than getting hurt over it. Obviously, David is not speaking of sinful desire here when he says that God will cause to prosper all my help and all my desire, right? We also know that David doesn't speak of sinful desire here because he warns future kings of the end of living like worthless men at the end. Did you see that in verses 6 to 7? Now you remember that God promised to discipline David as a son, but here he warns of unjust rulers who do not fear God. Notice this, fourth, worthless leaders are thorns to be burned. See, these verses add a wisdom comment on worthless men from from the Hebrew word Belial. We've seen this before, Belial. We've seen sons of Belial. It's used to describe idolaters in Deuteronomy 13, rapists and murderers in Judges 19, and the rebellious sons of Eli in 1 Samuel 2. David says in verses 6 to 7 these things about the, the the worthless men. He says this, But worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. So while the end of just leadership is a new creation, springing up with life, with flourishing green grass-like growth, the end of worthlessness and worthless men is to become like thorns, kind of reminiscent of the the curse-type language, which can't be touched by human hands, but need to be met with armor of, of either gardens 
or war. It's, it's, it's interesting. The language is like wood and, and iron, and it could be either because you use both for either, either fighting a battle or fighting a garden. But here, uh, this new king whom God will send, he will come in and he will make sure that all of these thorns are utterly consumed with fire. That's their end. Now that's interesting, isn't it? You have two lights. One is the light of the sun that gives life, and the other is this burning fire that consumes those who are not trusting and living for God. Of course, as this king goes, that God is speaking of through God's king, so goes the people. And David looks to a greater Messiah than himself, Jesus, who is the Christ. Now, now here's something interesting about this text. If you were to, to go and look it up, you'll find that uh, many have looked at this text, this, these verses, as messianic, as verses that are preparing the way for the greater Messiah that was to come. So Martin Luther writes a, a great deal on this specific chapter. And when he does, he says that this is speaking of the coming Messiah. This chapter should be put right alongside Genesis 3.15, where God promised Adam a seed that would come after him that would bring salvation from all of the works of Satan. Uh, if you read in the Greek version of this text, you'll find that it, it refers to it as messianic. If you look at uh, the Targum of Jonathan, which was kind of an exposition that was read in synagogues, it speaks of this as a messianic text. I think we're pretty safe saying this is a text that is looking to and for Jesus. And so as we think about the reality of this, I want to close with quick three takeaways. There's so many takeaways that you could take from from this, but I want to give you three quick ones as you go home. First, your works and your position will never be so great that you do not need the grace that only comes through Jesus Christ. King Jesus is who you need. Think about this. King David, he was the hero that Israel loved to sing about. He was the, the model of what it looked like to be a king and against which every other king would be judged. And this king, with his dying words, says you need something more. You need a greater Messiah than me. Jacob told you, Balaam told you, I'm telling you, you need a greater Messiah than myself. You need a greater light than the light that I have. So put your faith in the Messiah who came to save broken people and give them new life. If you haven't done it, don't go another day. You're not promised another day. Put your faith in Christ today. And tell somebody, tell one of us. Second, Christians, this is how we read the Bible, with an eye towards Christ. This is how we read all the Bible. We are looking for Christ. We here, we preach expositionally. That means that we typically go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through whole sections of the Bible. And when we're doing that, we are doing that because we believe that the greatest thing that every human soul needs is actually to hear from the Word of God. We want to expose God's words to you. And as we read the Scriptures, what we find is, is that the Bible tells us that if we are really exposing the point of the Bible, the point of the Bible isn't you, it's Jesus. Now, it's the most important message you'll ever hear for you. But it's not about you, it's about Christ. And so when we preach week in and week out, we are 
always looking for how it prepares us to see the glories and majesties of Christ. It's kind of like the popular rom-com quote. I don't know if you like rom-coms. I do. I'm humble enough to admit that before you. I like it when relationships work out and when people are happy. But there's this quote that you'll often hear, something to this effect, it's you. It's always been you. And I'm thinking that throughout the whole Bible. It's Christ. It's always been Christ. And if you think that that's a little too romantic or cheesy, let me tell you that that Peter, who is a, a zealot and wasn't scared to, you know, swing a sword, he said something very similar in his own words. You remember Peter explained prophecy in 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12. Prophecies like David's. And this is what he says. Concerning this salvation, he's been talking about salvation. He says, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, right? So prophets from the Old Testament. Now he's talking to a mostly Gentile audience. And he's saying, They were actually prophesying for your benefit. These Old Testament texts, they were for you. Catch this, what he says. They were searching and inquiring carefully. What were they looking for? They were inquiring what person or time? The Spirit of Christ in them. Stop. Old Testament prophets, the Spirit of Christ in them is preparing them. What for? He was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them, these prophets, that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by what? The Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look into. Some of you are like, man, I'm having trouble not checking my email right now. Angels spellbound over the things that we are looking at in the Word of God. And what does it say about the Word of God? The Word of God that came through these Old Testament prophets? It is from the what? The Holy Spirit? Yes, the Spirit of Christ. So not only is it you, it's always been you, Christ has been preparing us for Himself through the Word. See, Christ is speaking through David. The greater Christ is speaking through the lesser Christ about the greater Christ that is to come. True spirituality, it always exalts and sings of Jesus. So when our hearts don't sing of Jesus, we need to consider our lives. Are we following Christ? Are we obeying Jesus? Is there disobedience that is making our hearts heavy before God? Is there a way that we have stopped trusting Jesus so that we can't get excited about singing to Christ? Are we praying dependently for His help? Are we trying to just muster it on our own? Are we sick and need special healing mercies from the Lord? Are we with the people that Jesus loves in a local church? Are we trying to love Jesus without loving His body? Do we know that we need to sing? See, we need Jesus and His people, and if we can't be here, we ought to be desperate for what Jesus loves. But third, if we have Christ, we can have hope in the face of death. It's only this kind of hope in this Christ that causes us to be able to look at death and say, where is your sting now? I'm not fearful of you anymore. I'm looking forward to more Jesus. See, we have a new and better covenant. The new covenant that comes in Christ. It is the everlasting of everlasting covenants. If it's possible to be more everlasting, this is it. It is in Christ who defeated sin, death, and the devil to draw broken 
people like you and me to God. See, our future has begun if we are in Christ. It is already, the light is already dawning in our very hearts, according to the words of Scripture. Death has been swallowed up. Eternity awaits as we eagerly await the return of Jesus. And then faith becomes sight. The things that we dream about are real. And our inheritance arrives in full. I'm I'm tired of the little things that are so generous from God that come to us. And I can't imagine what the inheritance looks like when it's paid in full. Do you dream about that? A bad day will make you dream about that. And all of creation will be renewed with our bodies. All because God will keep His promises. Let's pray. Christ the Lord 
Put my faith in the promise of his word There's forgiveness for every time I fail In repentance from my sin God provides all the help I need to persevere Praise His name that my life is found in Him There is power in the finished work of Jesus To change helpless sinners just like me contentment when nothing else can satisfy and so I flee from my sin to Christ the Lord and put my faith in the promise of his word Like the voice of one crying in the wilderness makes straight the way of the Lord, Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries is looking for those who will partner with us in this ministry of making a path straight for the Lord directly to the hearts of listeners. If you would like to partner with us to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and deliver the saving grace of our Lord to others through volunteering, through prayer, and through donations, please call us at 602 602- 866-8999 That's 602-866-8999 The following program is called Divine Intervention. One man was walking rapidly down the slope of the mountain. He was walking so rapidly that from afar it seemed like he was running. With one look, you could tell he was extremely angry. He had a penetrating glare and his reddened face was stiffened. His hair was flying in the wind of the valley. He was holding tight to the sword attached to his side. He was not alone. He was in front, and behind him was a crowd close to 400 with swords following him. As they were rapidly walking down the slope, dirt and rocks were flying everywhere. Just by looking at how urgent and angry they were, we can definitely assume that something was wrong. Who is this David? Who is the son of Jesse? Suddenly, the man shook his head left and right. As time passed, He felt more uncomfortable because of the words that wouldn't be erased kept lingering in his mind. These days, there are many of those vagrant men who grudgingly leave their owners and hang around together. I can't give my valuable food to them. Tell them I don't want to deal with men who have come from nowhere. Suddenly, deep within the man's heart, his anger was flaring upwards. That wretched fellow! He doesn't know the good grace I poured onto him. How dare he tease me? Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? Vagrants? Where did they come from? I'll deal with you immediately. 
His face was rough and ferocious, and he looked nothing like his usual self. David recently heard the news that the prophet Samuel died, and he felt dejected, like a part of him was cut off. The prophet Samuel was his only support in the world. Samuel was his only refuge and comfort. Although they were far apart in distance, it gave strength to David knowing that God's person who anointed him with oil and declared that he would be king was alive somewhere. Through Samuel, he felt comfort and peace as if he were facing God. Whenever his calling was shaken, he would think of Samuel and set his heart straight again. After David heard the news of Samuel's death, he was so dejected and lonely. No one was able to understand his feelings. David heard the news of Samuel's death at the time of his burial. Then he went down to the desert of Paran. He may have wanted to be far away from Saul, who was after his life, for fear was in the deep place of his heart. After Samuel died, he looked at his situation. His men consisted of those who were in debt, homeless, and victimized. He soon became their leader. The similarity between David and them was that they were all runaways. He was confused. His identity and calling were all shaken. How long would he have to live this uneasy, fearful, and weary life of a runaway? He had doubts of whether anything he was doing is what God wanted. He was getting weary at God's long silence and felt like God had forgotten and abandoned him. He was distressed, lonely, and suffering. Lord, many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. Lord, how long will it be? Have you eternally forgotten me? How long will you hide your face from me? These days, such groaning was often inside of him. In his withering state, he heard Nabal's insulting words and it instantly triggered him. Nabal's words pierced David's heart and his sudden uncontrollable anger flared up in an instant and he momentarily lost his judgment. For a long time, David and his subordinates have shown great kindness and goodwill to Nabal. In the wilderness, he protected Nabal's servants who were keeping sheep from dangerous situations and protected his wealth. However, Nabal's response today was very preposterous. Who is David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their master these days. I don't have a reason to share my food with those vagrants who come from nowhere. David was already depressed, and Nabal's words were like cold water being poured onto him. David was already lonely, in difficulty, despair, and shaken. Nabal's words of insult and reproach became an arrow that deepened his pain and made it bleed. His rational mind was numb, and he was in spiritual darkness. He didn't have time to think or involve God with this matter. His weak and shaken inner self lacked consideration, care, gentleness, and wisdom. He was now a slave to his emotion of anger and just ran like a fierce horse. May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I leave alive one male 
of all who belong to Nabal. I will kill all of them. Soon, there would be bloodshed in Nabal's household. Due to Nabal's foolishness, countless innocent lives would be lost. Dear listeners, Today we met a person who almost put himself and his men in danger in one moment due to his emotion of anger. That's right, he was David who is called a man after God's own heart. A man after God's own heart. However, the David we met today was very unfamiliar. David had two chances to kill Saul, who was in pursuit to kill him, but he didn't draw his sword. He confessed that God is the one who pays back and he fully trusted and depended on God. Where did that David go? Just because of one person's insulting words, he had 400 men ready to kill an entire family. It's hard to understand this two-faced David. Right now, David was talking according to where his emotion was leading him and was facing the foolish Nabal with anger. It was a moment where the Nabal hidden inside of David came out. If I deal with Nabal according to my emotion without God, then the opponent Nabal wakes up the Nabal inside of me and the inner Nabal reacts. Right now, David resembles King Saul who is pursuing to kill him all his life. Saul mobilized an army to pursue and get rid of the one who hurt his pride and made him uncomfortable. This foolishness of Saul is appearing in David in the same way. David is being dominated by emotions. He is dealing with Nabal with Nabal. David is also a human with the sinful nature. When he is before God and acts together with God, David's spirituality goes beyond common sense and reality. Leaving emotions aside, he looks at people and situations within God's grace, and thinks and acts according to God's heart. However, this is not possible when one is not in God. Not only David, but anyone can fall. We are all like this. Our Nabal is always there. Nabal is the person who torments and attacks me. It could be a person who is envious and jealous of me. When someone provokes me by attacking me, or if one is jealous of me and I deal with it according to my emotion and thoughts, then the sinful nature within me takes the shape of my opponent, and the hidden navel within me comes alive. Have you ever experienced this? I admit that in my life, there is an opponent like navel within me. After finding out my opponent's envy and jealousy towards me, I responded with the same emotion and soon I find myself to be the exact same person as my opponent. My opponent's emotion of jealousy made my emotion of jealousy come forth. At the sound of my opponent's criticism, the sound of my criticism comes forth. My opponent's viciousness and wickedness point to the viciousness and wickedness within me. This is a fearful trap. The opponent may have started it, but the result is miserable for everyone. If I fall in this trap, then I also become a Nabal and a Saul. If we get caught by Nabal, our lives go into regression. 
Nabal may appear frequently, and we may meet him often as we live, but we cannot let Nabal become the main part of our lives. Our lives cannot be wasted on Nabal. To live a life God desires, we must boldly push Nabal away. If we don't, then we become Nabal. That is a very sad thing. Is there anyone who has discovered Nabal within you? If so, I hope you do not delay, but go before God now. I desperately hope you could be free from Nabal through the Holy Spirit. Only then can your life go forward according to God's perfect and pleasing will. I hope your week will be filled with such grace. This is Proverbs chapter 16, verse 32. Better a patient person than a warrior, one with self-control than one who takes a city. Amen. We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. 
Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.